Today's passage is from Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Lord of our God endures forever. Um, If you're joining us for the first time today, uh, we're doing a summer series on the Ten Commandments, and every single Sunday we're looking at one commandment, and today we're taking a look at the Third Commandment. But before we dive into what the Third Commandment is, uh, just by way of introduction, I think that whenever uh, we as modern people hear the word commandment, uh, the first impression we have is that something is strict, it's restrictive, it's like being placed in a straitjacket, and so... Uh, the question is, how do the Ten Commandments then, how is it freeing? And I think that the way that we can all experience true freedom and flourishing in life uh, is not so much by the absence of rules and commands, but the way that we experience true freedom, flourishing in life, is not by the absence of rules, but by the presence of the right rules. So let me give two examples of how this can work. Imagine for a moment that there's a fish named Nemo And Nemo is watching Little Mermaid. You know that scene in Little Mermaid where Ariel sings, I want to be where the people are. And Nemo thinks, uh, Nemo's watching it, and it deeply resonates with him. And he thinks to himself, she's right. I want to be where the people are. I'm sick and tired of living in the the small confines of this little fishbowl. And so Nemo thinks to himself, I want to be free. And so he rams into the fishbowl over and over, and finally it tips over. And Nemo is free, except that he's not, because he's flapping all over the ground, and instead of experiencing the type of flourishing and freedom he had anticipated, he is now slowly experiencing a death. And the point of that is that true freedom doesn't come by the absence of rules and doing whatever we want, but true true freedom, a truly free life, comes from, from the presence of the right rules in our life. Let me give you another example. Um, my oldest daughter now, Logan, is two and a half years old, and she runs around all over the place and often gets hurt. And so one of the commandments I give her is, thou shalt not run 100 miles an hour in the house. Now, Logan can interpret that two ways. Number one, dad sucks. He's such a killjoy. He, he doesn't let me do anything. He hates me. I feel like I'm suffocating in this apartment. Or she can view it this way. He loves me. He's telling me this so I won't get hurt or injured, and it's for my protection so that I can actually experience more freedom, more flourishing, not less. The point of the Ten Commandments is not so that God will give us all these rules and we can't really live and have fun, but the point of the Ten Commandments is actually to give us more freedom, not less. Now, where am I getting that from? How do I know this? If you take a look at verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And we know that based upon the book of Exodus, the Israelites were in bondage and in slavery for 430 years in Egypt. And after the 430 years are over, God liberates the people and he takes them out of Egypt. And it's after their liberation that God gives them the Ten Commandments. And what that means is that the Ten Commandments was not given to the people of God to re-enslave them, but it was given to them so that they can live a flourishing life. Now, here's a question as we take a look at the probably the most neglected of all the Ten Commandments, the Third Commandment. Here's a question. How does misusing God's name 
lead to our flourishing and more freedom in life? How do these dots connect? And that's what we're going to be taking a look at today. So the first thing I want us to think about is the importance of names, where Shakespeare once said, what's in a name? Uh, when my second daughter, uh, Hayden, was born, we had the hardest time thinking of a name for her because there are all these rules you have to follow when you name your kid. For example, it has to sound cool. Uh, it can't be easily made fun of by her peers. Um, and this, this was the, the, the hard one. Um, if your friends already took it, you can't use it anymore because they sort of have a copyright on it. And so I would literally go on the internet and read through like 600 different names to find the perfect name for our daughter, and eventually we settled on the name Hayden. But here's the point. Kids don't name themselves. One of the first acts of authority parents do is naming their children. And here in this text, as you take a look at verse 2 one more time, it says, I am the Lord your God. And here, God is saying, this is my name. And one of the reasons why verse 2 is so powerful is because of this. No one named him. He already had a name. In other words, he has this unique type of authority. And we also see in the book of Genesis that God is the one that names Adam, and he gives Adam the authority to name the animals in the field. And so here we see that God has a unique type of authority because we didn't name him, but he already had a name. And what that means is we can't call God whatever we want, but we call God for who he is and how he reveals himself to us. So one of the first things that we see is names sort of point to a type of authority, but names not only point to authority, but names point to meaning as well. Now, living in our Western individualistic culture, we don't really pick names because it has meaning. Hayden actually means one belonging to God, but we didn't pick it because of the meaning. We just picked it because it sounded cool. Uh, In our Western individualist culture, names don't really have a lot of meaning, but in the ancient Near East and in the Far East, names have a lot of meaning, which is why when you read Scripture over and over, people are constantly changing their names. Why? Because something happened in their life. A major narrative arc took place and a different direction took place, and they felt like they were now a new person And as a result of this new life that they experienced, they wanted a new name as well because in the ancient Near East, your name defined who you were. And similarly, it is with God. God's name describes who he is. And in Scripture, there are over a hundred different names for God. Did you know that? The Alpha and the Omega, the Ancient of Days, our provider, our healer, our comforter, our refuge, our shelter in the time of storm, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the list goes on and on. There are over a hundred names that God has, and each of those names describes one aspect of what God is like. But out of all the hundred names that God has, there is one name that stands above the rest, and it is his personal name, and that is the name Yahweh. In the book of Exodus, Moses sees something very, very strange, and he sees this burning bush. And that burning bush is a mediated form of God because you cannot see God face to face because of how brilliant and how glorious he is. And so God appears to him in a mediated form, and Moses says, who are you? What's your name? And how does God respond? I am that I am. Just let that sink in for a moment. This is one of the most brilliant statements in Scripture. What's your name? I am that I am. 
One of the most foundational philosophical questions that you can ask is, why is there something instead of nothing? For Christians, we believe that there is something instead of nothing because there always was something. When God says, I am that I am, do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I am uncreated, I am self-existent, and I am eternal. All of that in just that statement alone. Now, if you were to read this in Hebrew, I am that I am, it would say, Yahweh, Asher, Yahweh. Now, why am I saying this in Hebrew? The reason why I'm saying this out loud in Hebrew is because when a Jewish person would read that passage in Exodus, they wouldn't say Yahweh, Asher, Yahweh out loud. You know what they would say? Adonai, Asher, Adonai. Now, why would a Jewish person not say Yahweh out loud, and why would they replace it with the word Adonai? The reason why they would do that is because Yahweh, God's personal name, is too holy. It's too awesome for any person that's fallen and finite to actually say out loud. Now, that was the perspective of Jews back then and still today. Now, think about our perspective today and the way that we use God's name. We use God's name in profanity. We use God's name whenever we're shocked or surprised. And even when we pray, we misuse God's name. When we say, Father God, thank you for this day, Father God, and please be with me, Father God, for all that I have to do, Father God, this day. Even when we pray, we're sort of loosely uh, using uh, the name of God, and we're not using it the right way. And so what is the third commandment trying to say then? What the third commandment is trying to say is not so much uh, that we shouldn't use God's name, but what the third commandment is trying to say is that we shouldn't misuse his name. Another way of translating the third commandment is do not say God's name in vain. Uh, What does vain mean? It means to empty out or to hollow out so that it has lesser value and meaning. I'll give you an example of this on the first page of your bulletin um, from an unusual source, if you've been at our church for a while, and it comes from an athlete and not a philosopher, Chris Bosch. In 2011 and 2012, uh, Chris Bosh joined the Miami Heat to form this super team with uh, LeBron James and, uh, and Dwayne Wade. And prior to joining the Miami Heat, Chris Bosh was sort of the number one guy on his former team. But after he joined the Miami Heat, he sort of became third fiddle to LeBron James and Dwayne Wade. And he wasn't performing up to expectation because the Miami Heat were actually struggling in the beginning of the season. And so as a result of that, one of his harshest critics, a man named Skip Bayless, began to critique him, and he would call Chris Bosch Bosch Spice after Posh Spice, who is one of the Spice Girls, third wheel on a great team, Chris Bosch, third wheel on a great team, not performing up to expectation. And so finally, they have a sit-down on a first take. Chris Bosch meets his harshest critic, Skip Bayless, and this is what Chris Bosch generally, generously says to him. First of all, I don't have a problem with you at all. We're both professionals. We both do our jobs. I'm sure you work hard. My only problem is just the whole misuse of the name. If I stink it up on the court, that's fine. I don't have a problem with you. I love jokes. I love cracking on jokes. My thing is my family. We take a lot of pride in our name. My ancestors, my great-grandfather, my father, my grandfather, my aunts and uncles, we're very prideful with the Bosch name. I don't like being made fun of, and I don't think they appreciate either. That's all. I'm just trying to save you, you know, if you run into one of my aunts. Um, And similarly, what I would say is that God has a name, and God actually cares how his name is being used. 
Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, are you saying that if I just say, oh my God, okay, or Jesus Christ, that I'm breaking the third commandment? I mean, is that what this commandment is really trying to say? Um, because at that point, I do feel like I'm living in a straitjacket and I'm not experiencing freedom or liberation or any of the stuff that you talked about. So what is the third commandment trying to say? Well, let me put it this way. The point of the third commandment is not to think about God's name less, because you might be thinking, that wasn't my intention. The point of the third commandment is not to think about God's name less. The point of the third commandment is to think about God's name more, so that when we do use it, we don't misuse it, but we use it correctly. Now, you might be saying, okay, what about this? What if I text OMG? Is that really bad? You know what the answer to that is? The answer to that is a wise person doesn't ask, is this bad? A wise person asks, is this best? So I'm not going to answer that question, but ask yourself, because anytime we talk about gray areas, people always say, what about this? What about that? And what, we, what we're really saying is, can I, can I just flirt like close to that line without actually crossing over? A wise, mature person doesn't ask, is this bad? A truly wise person asks, is this best? Now, when you take a look at any of the Ten Commandments, it not only talks about what we ought not to do, but it also talks about what we should do. So, for example, the Sixth Commandment says, do not murder. So what does it mean we should do? We should give life to people. Don't be the kind of person that is draining on other people. Uh, Seventh Commandment, do not commit adultery. Be faithful. Uh, Eighth Commandment, do not steal. Be charitable and generous with your money and time. Uh, the ninth commandment, do not lie, speak the truth. Tenth commandment, do not covet, be content. And so anytime we take a look at the t- Ten Commandments, it slices both ways, what we ought not to do and what we should do. And so as we take a look at the third commandment and it says that we shouldn't misuse God's name, it's also talking about the fact that we should use God's name in correct ways. And one of the ways that we're actually going to um, practice this together in our service today is actually by praising God with the final two songs of our service, because one of the ways that we can use God's name correctly is by praising his name or blessing his name or calling on his name. But it's not only through our praises, but it's through our prayers that we can use God's name correctly. The Lord's Prayer says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does that phrase mean, to hallow God's name? What it means is that we set it apart. That it's not just another word. It's not just another inconsequential word, but we hallow it. We set it apart instead of hollowing it out, emptying of its value and its meaning. And so even when we pray, the way that we close our prayers is what? In Jesus' name, amen. Or in your name we pray, amen. Because his name is unique. It's special. It's different. It's not just another name. And when we're praying, we're actually praying to a real being, and therefore there is power in the name. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, My oldest daughter now, Logan, uh, when she takes a bath, she likes to stand up. And even though we have this mat that helps her from slipping, sometimes she steps a little outside of the mat, and she'll wipe out on the bathtub. And so every time she stands up, I say, Logan, sit down. And she looks me in the eye and just refuses and just still stands up and says, Logan, I said, sit down. What does she do? She still stands up. And so I pull out the, the last tool in my toolbox and I say, Logan, mommy said, sit down. 
And immediately, it's like Pavlovian, she sits down because evidently there's more power in her name than there is in my name. And the point of that is, the point of that silly illustration is, there is power in God's name. When we say in Jesus' name, amen, we are not just praying to an empty deity that is in the sky. But God is real. He is alive. He's listening. And therefore, there is power in praying in Jesus' name because he is listening to what we have to say. Now, up to this point, you might be thinking, okay, but in your introduction, you said the whole freeing life thing, flourishing life thing up to this point, I still feel like you're telling us rules, what to do, what not to do, and you're right. So in what ways then does the third commandment give us more freedom instead of more bondage and slavery in uh, our lives? Well, my two daughters, their last name is Chung, and so they represent the Chung clan, the Chung family, and so how they behave is a reflection of who I am as a father and who we are as a family. And similarly, we all have a name. We are all children of God, and therefore, how we live our lives as children of God, as his sons and daughters of God, represents the type of God that he is, which is why in Scripture, over and over, God says, you have profaned my name, or I had concern for my name, or for my name's sake, over and over again. Why does God say that? Is it because they're texting OMG? You have profaned my name because you have texted OMG. Is that why God is saying that? The reason why God is saying you have profaned my name is because of the way that you're living your life, your behavior, that this is not a representation of who I am nor who you are. You're better than this. You're more than this. That's what this passage is trying to say. It's trying to say that that we are not only a child of God. This is not only talking about who we are, but whose we are as well that we belong to God, our Father. And oftentimes when we forget who we really are, that we've been given a name, that we're children of God, we're beloved by God, our default mode then at that point when we forget who we are, our default mode is to go and make a name for ourselves. The typical stuff, career, money, success, maybe getting married and having our own kids for a lasting legacy. If you don't realize that you already have a name that's been given to you, that you are somebody, you have no choice but to make a name for yourself. Let me give you an example of how this often uh, turns out on the first page of your bulletin from Tennessee Williams. After uh, Tennessee's blockbuster play, The Glass Menagerie, uh, Tennessee Williams acquired instant success and fame. But after acquiring all of this instant success and fame, Tennessee Williams uh, realized that this was sort of stupid, all of this. And uh, in a little essay that you can find on the internet called The Catastrophe of Success, this is what Tennessee Williams says after all the notoriety experiences. He says, I was snatched out of virtual oblivion and thrust into sudden prominence. I sat down and looked about me and was suddenly very depressed. I lived on room service, but in this too, there was a disenchantment. Of course, all this was the more trivial aspect of a spiritual dislocation 
that began to manifest itself in far more disturbing ways. I soon found myself becoming indifferent to people. A well of cynicism rose in me. I got so sick of hearing people say, I loved your play, that I could not say thank you anymore. I no longer felt any pride in the play itself, but began to dislike it, probably because I felt too lifeless inside ever to create another. I was walking around dead in my shoes. You know then that the public somebody you are, when you have a name, is a fiction created with mirrors. What Tennessee Williams, his story is really trying to say, and the story that we might know ourselves or of other people, is that when you get to the end of the rainbow, oftentimes there is not a pot of gold there. And that was the experience of Tennessee Williams and so many other people. When you seek to make a name for yourself through these different things, it will not fulfill you the way that you want to be fulfilled. It will not satisfy you the way that you want to be satisfied. When you go and make a name for yourself, that is in vain. But in Christianity, you have to know that you have a name, that you are already somebody irrespective of what you do. And one of the greatest illustrations of this comes from the story of Man of La Mancha. And the story of Man of La Mancha, the main character actually thinks he's Don Quixote. And so for whatever reason, he thinks that he's this hero. And he goes, the way that he lives his life, it's like he's always on this adventure trying to help people. And he meets a prostitute on the street named Aldonza. And in the play, she looks grimy. Her hair's just disheveled. She's a complete mess. And even though her name is Aldonza, Don Quixote doesn't call her Aldonza. In fact, he doesn't even ask her what her name is. Instead, he calls her Dulcinea, which means sweetness. And Aldonza responds by saying, that's not my name. My name is Aldonza. And he says, no, you are my Dulcinea. And she says, no, I am Aldonza. My mother abandoned me when I was born. I was born on a dung heap. I will die on a dung heap. My name is Aldonza, and I am nothing but a whore. But still, Don Quixote looks at her, and he calls her Dulcinea, as if she is the sweetest person he has ever met. And throughout the play, because uh, Don Quixote calls her Dulcinea over and over and over again, she slowly begins to believe it. And as a result of that, in the play, you can actually see her physically changing becoming sweeter and sweeter, purer and purer, cleaner and cleaner. And eventually, at the end of the play, someone says, Aldonza. And she says to them, that's not my name. My name is Dulcinea. She had had come to believe that she actually was Dulcinea. And so oftentimes with us, we forget who we really, really are because of the way that we live our lives. But in Christianity, no matter what you have done and how you live your life, You are God's dulcinea. You are his sweetness, his fairness. Uh, Now, if you take a look at the rest of verse 7, it seems to say the exact opposite of what I just said. If you take a look at verse 7, it says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And if we're all honest... Uh, We don't represent God the way that we're supposed to. And in verse 7, it clearly says, you are guilty. Except that's only half the story because you're also not guilty. And one of the reasons why you're not guilty is because even though we don't represent God the way that we ought to, there was someone that would come that would represent God perfectly. 
and that is Jesus himself. I mentioned in the Old Testament in Exodus, uh, God says, I am that I am. Did you know that in the New Testament, Jesus says seven I am statements? And he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the gate. Over and over, he says, I am. And the reason why Jesus makes those I am statements is not by accident, because what he is saying is, I am God. That same God of the burning bush, I am he. And so he's making a correlation with his deity, but Jesus is not only the perfect representation of God himself, but he is the perfect representation of you and me. He's the perfect representation of humanity because the way that he lived his life was absolutely sinless and guiltless. And the reason why that is such good news that he is the perfect representation for us is because on the cross, he takes all of our guilt and our misrepresentation and he takes it upon himself. And on the cross, he has another statement where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anytime in Scripture someone's name is used twice, it connotes a sense of closeness and intimacy. And here on the cross, Jesus cries out twice, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And even though Jesus intimately cries out to God the Father, what he hears back is nothing but silence. And the reason why he experiences the silence of God, which is a form of hell, is so that our names would not be deleted from the book of life because Jesus was forsaken in our place. And because Jesus died on the cross for your sins, one of the things that you have to know is that he knows your name. As pastors, one of the things that we try to do is remember everyone's names. It's not the easiest thing to do, and sometimes we fail at doing it. But here, God knows your name. He, in fact, numbers the very hair on your head because he knows you intimately. And so one of the things that we can be comforted by is not only that we ought to call God the right way, but he knows who you are. But secondly, we, are, we should seek his face and presence as well by calling and invoking his name. I like the way that Tim Keller put it when he said, who is the only person that can walk into a king's chamber at three in the morning and ask for a glass of water? The only person that can walk into a king's chamber at that time of the morning is the king's child, his son or daughter. And similarly, that is the type of access that we have to God our Father, if only we would call on his name. But that is the type of access that we have to God. And lastly, one of the most important things, uh, ways that we can be reminded to represent God well is this, make sure that our names outlive us rather than us outliving our names. You know what a good example of someone outliving their name is? Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby was America's dad. Now the only thing that people think of him is is a womanizer, a rapist, and a misogynist. Bill Cosby is an example of someone that outlived his name. But for us, we should let our names outlive us rather than us outliving our names. And so let me ask you a question. Based upon the way that you're living your life right now, are you outliving the name? of who you really are in Christ, that you are a son and daughter. You are God's dulcinea. But based upon the way that you're living your life right now, are you outliving the name? Well, I'll tell you what, if you are, just remember this, you are still guiltless because of what Jesus has done for you. And the more you meditate on that, you will realize that you 
really are God's dulcinea. Let's pray together. Lord, every day we wake up and we fail to represent you the way that we ought to. And so it is my prayer that you would remind us that we should be a pure reflection of who you are. And may the power and the fuel that we have to live in such a way be that you died for us because you loved each and every one of us and you knew us by name. I pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.